Hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one, hour-long-ish interviews with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this helpful little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Monica Petrie. Now, if you know Monica like I know Monica, then you're going to know her as that woman who's involved in a lot of social activism activities on the island. Well, we're going to get to hear Monica talk about those things as well as a lot more. We're going to get to hear Monica describe what it was like coming to South Pender Island starting from the age of 10. She will also talk about her 30-plus year career as an early childhood educator. She's going to describe the fundraising and the epic work involved in the Brooks Point acquisition. She'll also talk about her work with POD. Pender Ocean Defenders, and she'll also talk about her involvement with First Nations reconciliation on the island. All that and a lot more in a really amazing interview. And once again, I feel so fortunate to have an opportunity to get to do these because, you know, I feel like I learn so much and I have such a nice connection with people while doing these. And this was no different. It was really wonderful to get an opportunity to sit across the table from Monica and really learn a lot uh, within this interview. So I'm positive you're going to enjoy this one. That's it for me. We'll see you guys on the other side. And without further ado, here's my interview with Monica Petrie. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy you're here for sure. Right on. How was uh, how was your day so far on this uh, this kind of rainy, gloomy Saturday, late fall afternoon or mid fall afternoon? Well, fine. I didn't go out to um, get the last of the apples today, but I've been uh, cooking, you know, making applesauce and and so on. Yeah. So the rain is a little bit of a damper, but I'll find a time and a place to uh, take a walk later today nice and we say last of the apples you mean uh on your property you have some apples on our trees yeah nice Mm -hmm. what kind of apples are they oh we have gala and uh mutsu that's they're both pretty good producers mutsu is a hybrid apple but uh very tasty and uh a few other varieties and some pears and uh, and plums that are kind of limping along but uh yeah. Fantastic. And some applesauce. All good. And uh, applesauce. <laughs> applesauce. Applesauce with those apples. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, jump right into the traditional first question we always get to on the podcast. And that is, of course, what brought you to Pender Island? What brought me to South Pender Island was an invitation by a family friend who had just bought some land on South Pender on Drummond Bay. And uh, she invited her city friends to come out and camp to tent on her property on her land and so my mother and I took her up on that it was the year I turned 10 and uh, we were living in North Burnaby at the time so uh, we came over and the way to get here at that time was to go to uh, Steveston 
and get a boat that would bring us over to Port Washington. And uh, they made a stop there, and one of the things they carried was the mail for Pender Island. Now, this was before there was a bridge between the two islands, and so there were two separate postmasters, if you will. I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was still Corbett's on North Pender, but it was uh, whoever it was at, at Port Washington, and John Freeman from South Pender would come up in his little boat to get the mail, and he would pick up passengers and take us back down to uh, Gowland Beach at the end of Gowland Point Road and row us ashore. And then we walked the short distance from there to um, Eve's Place, which is where we camped for the first couple of summers. And then some other friends uh, decided that it would be nice to have a little cabin to have a shelter, and so a small cabin was built and a well dug. So... Um, I spent a good part of the summer uh, there because most of the adults who came over were family friends. And so even when my mom had to go back to work, I learned how to make myself useful, hauling water and uh, doing dishes. So people would say, oh, let her stay. And then I would sort of eke out a few weeks over the summer. And once I was a teenager, I met Josephine and Janet, Joe and Janet from uh, the Jennings Farm. And then I would spend a lot of time with them, helping them with their chores and sometimes staying with them as well. So, uh, you know, it was uh, a little paradise for me. And uh, the place we now know as Brooks Point was Alan Brooks's land. He, His mother, Marjorie, had talked him into spending his uh, the money that he had accumulated on this 10-acre piece looking out into the ocean. So he had that for many years and never built anything on it. And so later on, we got interested in keeping it that way. Uh, but maybe I'll come to that a little bit later. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. just sticking with your joy of the island and being mm -hmm. a, a young girl and really enjoying being over here, what was it exactly that resonated with you that you, you weren't finding in North Burnaby? Well, there was just so much of the natural world available. Forests and uh, grass meadows and the seashore. Tidal pools. I was fascinated with tidal pools. I spent a lot of hours you know, walking around on the beach and uh, looking at the anemones and the tiny little, little crabs and uh, periwinkles and so on. Uh, just really enjoying that. It was something that I didn't have access to at home. And uh, I had a lot of freedom because there wasn't a large population on the island, and particularly at that end, and so we knew pretty much everybody who would be around. And so I was able to come and go without uh, a lot of adult supervision. <laughs> and uh, I remember walking through the trail from the farm back to where we were staying on Drummond Bay. And uh, I would try to get home before dark, but sometimes it would be sort of dusk. And I would hear a sound, and I would say to myself, it's only a sheep or a deer. You know, nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> because at that time, the sheep were free-range on the island. Oh, really? So Jennings Farm sheep were out and about and grazing uh, around the island. It wasn't until the early 60s that the 
so-called pound law came in when people had to keep their uh, domestic livestock behind fences. Okay. Yeah. And so when you first were interacting with the island, what decade was this? 1950s. 1950s. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this is really fascinating. What was the South Island like in the 1950s in terms of, I guess, first of all, population and then roads as well, too? Okay. Well, population, I'm not sure. Probably a hundred or maybe a few more than that. There were farming families, and most of them seemed to be related to each other. Uh, the Spaldings and the Higgses and the Jennings and the Irvings and uh, the Penders, they were all related to one another. And then there would be summer people. So I got to know a few of them just because I was friends with Joe and Janet and met their cousins, like, uh, unfortunately, the recently late David Spaulding from South Pender and his brother Johnny. Uh, we were friends. Well, we were friends with Johnny. I didn't really get to know David till later because he was older and away at university. There was um, a couple, the Gills, who raised goats, those white goats, and so you could get goat milk and meat and cheese. People traded, people sold eggs and, you know, other farm produce. As far as I'm aware, it was not highly regulated, but... uh, It became more so as the years progressed. There was a dirt road uh, because it had been basically an ox cart road to begin with. And there weren't a lot of cars. There were a few, but of course they had to be shipped in. There were farm trucks and tractors, of course. But there were horse teams and something called a stone boat, which was like a big box that was low to the ground and on peeled logs so it would skid along and uh, we would go because the the settler people would go out where they were trying to make fields and they would have to collect stones to get them off the fields. Sure, yeah. And uh, one thing the Spalding family discovered because they were the first I think they were the first settler family in in the valley they found a lot of um, indigenous what we call artifacts but were actually belongings, things that belonged to people who made them or inherited them. But there were a lot of um, tools and uh, some arrowheads and things. So David and Johnny's dad, Herbert, collected those things that he and his father had plowed up. And uh, I believe he took good care of it. You know, he treated them with respect. And that collection is now at the Royal BC Museum. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've, I've never heard this before. Yeah, well, it used to be at the Pender Library. So I had seen it as a kid, and then I was able to see it again at the library. But uh, eventually, as I said, it went to the museum. Hmm. That's a that's a nice ending to that story. I think that, mm. uh, unfortunately, the ending to stories like that sometimes are not a collection was gathered and mm-hmm. they were preserved, but that's, it's a beautiful end to that story of five date artifacts and belongings. Yeah. Um, and so when you talked about that, people were selling eggs and meat and other things that was there a gathering spot for that to take place or was it farm stands or how did that wind up? Happening? It was more like farm stands. Yeah. You would, you would go to the place where 
the lamb or the eggs or the vegetables or the milk was available. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Teese was in the valley at one point, and we would go to him for milk And early on. Once the bridge went in in 1957, I believe, mm-hmm. that made a difference. There was uh, greater access between North and South Pender Island. And then, oh, my mom moved over in 1963 after I graduated from high school. A few years after, she had a little cabin built and she lived on Jennings Road. So when I came over to visit her when I was a bit older, uh, we would go to Ashton Ross Smith's farm on North Pender. Mm -hmm. Which is now Valley Home Farm. That's right. It's Valley Home Farm. And we would get milk from Ashton because he had a a herd of uh, Jersey cows, I believe. And uh, he and my mom were both English. They had the same birthday. They were born the same year. Wow, really? Yeah. Okay. So he would invite us in for tea and cookies. And we would sit and have a chat. Not every time, but, you know, a few times. So that was interesting to start to get to know some of the old timers, uh, the pioneer settler families on North Pender. So this is after high school, you said that uh, mm-hmm. these experiences were happening. And so just to give context in terms of geography for people listening, the Valley Home Farms, which is now called, and I'm sorry, back in the day, it was the called the Ashton Roth Smith, Ashton Roth Smith Farm. OK, mm-hmm. and that's that's located right by the community hall. It is. Yeah. So just uh, down from the community hall towards the uh, driftwood, if you're mm-hmm. traveling that direction on the left hand side there. But. Yeah, so in terms of hearing the stories from the uh, the settlers from back in the day, as somebody who just recently graduated from high school, their late teens, early 20s, you had an interest in hearing these stories? Oh, yes. Nice. Oh, yes. Yeah. The older half of my family grew up on the prairies, and so farm stories were fascinating for me, but I'd never really been on a farm until I came to South Pender, so I loved looking after the animals. Nice. Yeah. Which, uh, which animals in particular do you love looking after? Oh, um, well, we would feed the chickens and uh, the sheep, the lambs, the lambs, of course. Every once in a while, uh, you would have lambs that she couldn't feed. One year there were triplets, and so it was our job to hand feed them a long neck beer bottle full of uh, sheep's milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a big rubber nipple that you had to hang on to because the lambs could pull it right off when they were feeding. But, uh, yeah, I enjoyed all of that. Right on. Right on. Mm-hmm. So your your mom moves here, and she's living here full-time. Mm-hmm. And you've graduated from high school. And so from speaking with you earlier, it's my understanding that you would come every summer. Yes. So mm-hmm. from the age of 10... And uh, you would come every summer. And so how many years did that happen for him? Oh, right through. It didn't stop right. every summer. And it never stopped. It I'd never been, stopped. I've been on South Pender part of every year since since I began. Okay. Even when I moved away from BC, I would come back every summer. Wow. Mm-hmm. Every summer. Okay. Oh, yeah. Right. And then, well, I actually met my husband, Paul, on South Pender. So our children have been coming to the island since they were wee infants, and now our grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, 
slowly build up to that time mm -hmm. of meeting Paul on the South Island, but maybe we'll start with how your life unfolded uh, as you went into adulthood and you said that you uh, you moved away. Maybe you could just take us through your 20s a little bit and explain what uh, what happened during that time and where you you uh, went away to and and uh, maybe just a brief uh, brief sure. yeah. Well, my first move was to Montreal with uh, the man who was later my first husband, and um, there I got a job in a children's convalescent hospital. So kids who didn't need to be in hospital with all of that level of care, but weren't ready to go home yet. And so um, they would be babies through 12-year-olds. Uh, and so I was a nurse's aide, and I helped look after uh, kids during the day and uh, did infant feedings in the evening after supper. I remember all of those children, even though I was only 20 or 21 at the time. And, uh, yeah. So after that, I got married and moved to the U.S. for a few years, lived in Southern California and Buffalo, New York, south of Hamilton. Two very different places. From Two very different places, yes. He was an academic, and so we moved around a bit in that way. And uh, as I say, I kept coming back every summer, and one year I decided that I would like to take some training, and so I got into the uh, Education for Young Children program at UBC and started um, taking my credentials for early childhood education. And that was my career for over 30 years. Over 30 years? Yeah, 34 wow. years, I think, I worked in early childhood. Well, I'm gonna, I'm, it's a ridiculous <laughs> question to ask you to summarize the, that length of time in such a small uh, chunk of time. But uh, yeah. what, what can you tell us about how that was oh, as a career for well, you? Well, okay. So I came back to live in Canada and uh, got right into um, working in childcare. Once I had taken the basic courses, you know, you can go and work as an assistant. So I kept at it and uh, got my full credentials in 1970, I think. And uh, taught in some preschools and then some child care centers at UBC. Uh, with a group of parents, I started the first group child care center for under three years old, 18 months to three. They became much more common after that. But at the time, the only uh, child care you could have for a kid under three was family child care. And the parents group that I worked with were uh, students and staff at UBC. And the cooperative movement was pretty big in those days. And so they wanted to form a parent co-op. And I did that with them and became the first uh, supervisor of that center. And I worked in uh, child care there for a number of years. Got exhausted, took a year's leave, came to live on South Pender. <laughs> yeah. In a cabin at the end of Higgs Road. And um, started doing something that I loved, which was uh, batik, fabric arts. Then uh, went back to childcare and then eventually um, remarried after I met Paul. And uh, yeah, started teaching early childhood courses at night school. 
when I when my kids were young, and then got back into uh, actually working at a resource center. You know the resource center at Dragonfly. Okay. Yeah. Of yeah. Of course, well, I do. Yeah. Yes, this this was one of the first childcare resource and referral services in BC, West Coast, and I worked with them for many years. They became an umbrella group for some already existing societies, so early childhood multicultural services. Uh, we specialized in multicultural early childhood education, anti-bias, and helping children to learn English as a second language. So that that was what I did in the latter part of my career. You know, I was a resource teacher, and I would go out to child care centers and uh, work with groups of children, particularly those getting ready to go to kindergarten, and just help establish that they understood some of the basic concepts in both their first and second language. We didn't want children to lose their first language. It's the language they think in. It's the language of cultural transmission. And so we wanted to add English onto that. And uh, so that was a lot of my work. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we could spend an hour talking about your 34, career, 34 years. Right? I'm serious. I, I absolutely yeah. think we could. But there's so many incredible things that you're involved in on the island that mm -hmm. uh, I want to touch on. But uh, I, before we move away from this topic, I just want to ask about, because 34 years is a huge chunk, chunk of time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of little lives you interacted with and mm -hmm. helped along the way. What would you say in regards to the experiences that you, you had mm -hmm. along along the way? How would how do you summarize this at all, Monica? Oh, summarize it. Um, I felt a bit like a seed planter uh, in that I was often a first teacher for children. And you want to make that a really positive experience for kids. When I worked with the under threes, a lot of what we taught was language skills and social skills. And I always wanted them to feel at home in nature, we would go on nature walks and, you know, I really wanted them to have an experience of outdoors because uh, a lot of them lived in apartments or, you know, didn't, didn't maybe get as much time for outdoor play, but that was a big feature of the programs that we did. And uh, I remember telling some of my students, uh, I started out in early childhood education thinking that I had a lot to give a lot to teach children. And uh, I realized along the way that I had so much to learn from them. So we were like partners in learning. And it was my job to kind of set up the environment or take them to the natural environment and let them explore and answer their questions, you know, help develop their curiosity and uh, their sense of understanding and, and knowing. Is there an example of a lesson that you learned along the way that still sticks with you today? Oh, <laughs> well, I remember it being quite a, I figured it was a real challenge and then triumph when I got some of the children to realize that slugs were not awful creatures and that they didn't need to step on them. <laughs> they could walk around them, <laughs> you know. 
the slugs, the sluggies live here. This is their forest and we're the visitors, you know. And so I gradually got them over their fear and uh, discomfort with some of the animal life out there and um, helped them to develop some respect, you know, for where they were and, and whose home they were in. And another time that we were out, there were some snowberries on a bush and I pointed that out to the children and this was with three to five-year-olds. These kids were a little older. And we had been identifying huckleberries as something that was edible. But I said, you always want to be with an adult before you pick anything to eat to be certain that it's uh, edible and, and not going to give you a tummy ache. And so um, they wanted to know if we could eat snowberries. And I said, well, birds eat snowberries, but I don't think that people should. And one little boy said, why not? And one of my three-year-old girls said, well, birds have different kinds of tummies than we do, so they can eat it, but we can't. And I just thought, wasn't that brilliant? Totally. <laughs> so that's what I mean about learning, learning from kids. Nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for doing that. It's an incredibly important job in society, mm. and I think it's highly undervalued and under appreciated and mm -hmm. 34 years uh yeah it's a long time to be doing that so thank you for doing that yeah all right right okay well let's let's lead into some uh pender centric things and maybe mm -hmm. as a way to find our way into these different stories maybe we could uh, start with uh how you met your current husband paul all right so paul was living in the cabin which is behind our house currently okay the house wasn't there yet he was uh, renting a little cabin there. And I had come over to Pender to visit my mom, and I had some friends with me. And we were walking along the beach, and he was standing on the bank. And so we said hello. And uh, he tells it a bit differently, but we did say hello. And, um, you know, gradually became friends. And uh, he was married at the time and had a young daughter. Well, actually, when I met him, she hadn't been born yet. Anyway, we remained friends over the years, and then eventually he uh, separated from his first wife. And uh, our friendship developed into something a, a little stronger and more ro romantic, and eventually we got married. And then uh, we had our two sons. And how long have you and Paul been together for Oh, over 40 years. Over 40 years. Yeah. Okay. Our youngest, our eldest son is 43 and our youngest just turned 40. Okay. And uh, our daughter is uh, in her late 40s. Yeah. Well, I know that both you and Paul are invested and involved in numerous things on the island. Um, maybe the the first one that we could talk about is something you mentioned earlier, the uh, Brooks Point fundraising mm -hmm. that uh, Carl Hampson in a previous interview spoke about, but he also mentioned to speak to you about it as well and to yeah, hear, okay. uh, hear your version of things. So uh, maybe we could uh, hear a little bit about that because Brooks Point is an area of the island that a lot of people enjoy and mm -hmm. it's uh, it's there because of people's work and donations involved to uh, create that. So if you want to uh, just tell us a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, Alan Brooks, who had the 10-acre um, piece of Brooks Point, which was the largest piece 
had been living um, in the Spalding Valley, but then when his children got older, he moved off island. And he paid a lot of taxes on the place, and people had been approaching him about selling the land, which he was reluctant to do. And I have to credit Paul for having this idea, but not just Paul, I think Jan Kirkby was also involved in talking about um, the community purchasing Brooks Point. It wasn't called Brooks Point then. It really didn't have a separate name. Along the shore, it's contingent with uh, Gowland Point. And Gowland Point had been owned, by, I think, by one of the Pender sisters, Anne Pender, uh, Art and Connie's art sister. Anyway, and then the intervening, the piece in between was owned privately by uh, Professor Buchanan's family. So Paul talked to Alan Brooks one day and said, uh, we would be interested in keeping this land sort of free from development. And that was in 1996, I believe. And so subsequent to that, we formed a group in the neighborhood, which we called Friends of Brooks Point, And we got started with fundraising. So we initially charged people $25 to join. <laughs> uh, we had, oh, we thought of different uh, ways of fundraising. I think early on we had a, a garage sale and then an auction uh, when we started, you know, raising some money. A summer visitor to the island, Heather Haryu, uh, started a newsletter and we were going beyond the island population to people who knew the place, you know, in Vancouver and Victoria. So we were raising some money. Then I think we started, oh, I should tell you who some of the friends of Brooks Point were and still are. Sure, please um, do. Robert Dill, yep. Trilly Dunn, Terry and Anne McMullen, who have Whalewitch Farm, share that with uh, the Mac Diane McVeigh, And, uh, Oh, I mustn't forget anybody here. Well, if I think of someone else, I'll, I'll come back to it. But no, no we we formed a group. Oh, Isabel Roberts. Yeah, she was no longer on the island. So Isabel, I think, came up with the idea for T-shirts. So we got people to donate images that we could put on T-shirts. So uh, Susan Taylor uh, donated an image of sort of seashore shells and uh, seaweeds and so on. I think that was our hottest seller. <laughs> <laughs> I did an image of an orca in, in the kelp bed, circular image, and uh, that one was good. And then an artist named Pamela Brooks on North Pender gave us another one. So this started many summers of selling T-shirts, at the farmer's market, and uh, we partnered with, with PICA, the Pender Island Conservancy Association at that time, and they let us use their, you know, their wooden kiosk up at the farmer's market. And uh, so people came, visitors, they got to know more about it. We shamelessly solicited donations, but by working with PICA, people could claim the donation on their taxes gotcha. because Pika had a charitable number. 
then we started getting a little more sophisticated in terms of putting on a dinner and went to fundraising. Paul and Robert wrote a lot of fundraising requests and uh, various people, various organizations started donating. So I think one of the first was from Mountain Equipment Co-op, $10,000. Wow. That was a real boost. And in the meantime, the CRD had come in and bought the Gowland Point piece, partly because of its values of the chocolate lilies and the camas and the Gary Oak Meadow, which uh, is one of the most concentrated areas of growth in all of southern BC uh, for those plants. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the CRD came in at one point with the largest amount of money to purchase Brooks, Alan Brooks's 10 acres. And so they became the owners of it, in a sense. They became the body that started to oversee it. It became one of their regional park reserves. That was in 2000. And uh, luckily, it was uh, just in, in time because Alan had been ailing for some time. And uh, we were able to let him know that this had happened and that uh, his land was secure now. Actually, the Brooks family had donated the smallest of the three lots that made up the 10 acres. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. They had donated that, so we just had to fundraise for the other two. Then this gets very complicated, and I'll try to keep it simple, but so that was the first four years, 96 to 2000. Okay. And, yeah, I think it was after that that the CRD bought the Callan Point piece, the piece that was locally known as the Green Hill. And uh, that's on the on the heights above Gowland Beach. Yeah, for sure. And so yeah. that used to be called the Green Hill. It used to be known locally as the Green Hill. It's a beautiful description yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. And I think Brooks Point at one time was known as Bracken Point. But sheep grazed there, and then um, the ponies grazed there, the two ponies that were rescued by our neighbor Eve, she who first invited us to come to South Pender. And she's also related uh, to the Higgs family and the Spaldings. So she had rescued these ponies, and Alan Brooks gave her permission to let the ponies graze on the point, on his land. And, uh, of course, that introduced, they, that and the sheep introduced all kinds of non-native grasses to the place. One of the values of Brooks Point is its native plants, its native grasses. It's a stopover for migrating birds in the winter, and uh, the seashore is absolutely amazing it all is. the way around. Yeah. So there's Gowland Beach on the to the west of the point, and to the southeast of the point is the beach that connects Brooks Point to Gowland Point, and that's known as Marjorie's Beach because it was Alan Brooks's mother's favorite place uh, to visit when she was on tender. So then there was that remaining piece that belonged to the Buchanan family, and that was Professor Buchanan at UBC. And they eventually agreed to sell it. And it came with quite a price tag. And some people were opposed to buying it, but we felt for the ecological values, it was really important to have that because plant species move. 
and we could see that some of the chocolate lilies were actually migrating down towards um, Brooks Point and in between. So at that point, the Land Conservancy was trying to raise money for purchasing that piece. And I think that was in, was that 2010, maybe, 9 or 10. Wow. So from 96 to 2010, this was this project had been going on for? for well, there was a break at 2000. Okay. But then later on, we started fundraising again. Paul's much better with his memory of all of this. Okay, that's okay. No worries. Anyway, so that was when we actually, when we partnered with the Pender Island Conservancy Association, and we started seriously fundraising for that middle piece. So we were getting lots of very good donations from visitors to Pender, from people who lived here. We didn't generally disclose who they were, but yes, Carl... Hampson made a generous donation, and so did his mother in memory of his father, Leo. And that was quite an amazing day when Carl called up and said, my mother Ruth would like to come down and visit you. Can we come for a visit? And uh, we were sitting in the boathouse having a cup of tea or a glass of wine, and um, Ruth pulled an envelope out of her purse and handed it to us and there was a very generous check in it which was just amazing but she said she had always loved it and leo had loved it and that was what she wanted to do in her husband her late husband's memory Mm. and that day there was um, an owl visiting sat in the tree and witnessed all of this wow really Mm -hmm. and ruth was pretty sure it was leo Wow. Yeah. Interesting. You know, what I find so amazing about this is that the amount of effort and time and people Um, and money involved in order to have a space be a public space mm -hmm. and be kept as that, and that there's no other place like that on Mm -hmm. the island. So Gallon Point, Brooks Point, nowhere else like it. Yeah. It's so unique. It's so special. It's so beautiful. And every Mm -hmm. time I'm down there, I always walk away thinking, wow, this is actually even better than I remember from the last time. Mm-hmm. Seriously, it's yeah. so beautiful. And to to hear how much work went into creating this for people yeah. to enjoy, I'm just so blown away by it. And mm-hmm. I, I love being able to give an opportunity for people to talk about it. And mm-hmm. then all for, also for people to hear about it as well, too, to recognize that the reason that this exists mm-hmm. is because of hard work and initiative and uh, passion on yes. people's parts. And to make love it. of the land. And love of the land. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was another three years of fundraising. Right? <laughs> uh, because the CRD mm. had a sort of formula. They wanted the um, community to come up with a third of the costs of these regional parks. Okay. And so we finally convinced them that if you go back to the first acquisition which we donated so much money to, if they counted that in, then this other amount of money, we were going to try to raise another 100000 which we did, but it wasn't quite enough. And, you know, we're having delegations off to the CRD board, and I was the one, you know, many people wrote the little presentation, but I was the one who was asked to to give it. And, you know, and they've got a a five-minute limit, and the light is flashing, so it was rather nervous-making. But we had Dave Howe on our side, 
who is the Southern Gulf Islands director for the CRD. So he he was helpful in kind of steering us through some of the um, political stuff with the CRD in terms of timing and so on. So at one point they said, do you think you could raise another $200,000? Wow. And Paul said, well, I can't commit to that, and I'm working with the committee, so we've got to go back to the friends of Brooks Point and ask them what they think. And so we came back and we committed to 150000 And they said, okay, we'll give you another, I think it was two years, to raise that, and we did it in a year. So that was pretty amazing, but the there were more wonderful donations, and I can't remember the timing for all of these. Probably Ruth's was one of them. And then we had written a, a grant application to Environmental Heritage Canada, and we were looking for $50,000 from them, and we didn't hear, and we didn't hear. So we tweaked it a little bit with someone influential, our MP, who made an inquiry, and uh, somebody took another look at that and realized, oh, this is not as big a grant as some of them. Yes, I think we can find the money. And so, um, thanks to Elizabeth May, our request came to the top of the pile, and we got that, which took us actually over the 150000 that we had promised. These are, raise, yeah. these are just extraordinary numbers to, to even <laughs> contemplate and to think that, oh, okay, well, they just came back and then we've got to get an extra 200000 but we talked them down to 150000 All right, how are we going to do this? What are the logistics? And it's just, it, it's kind of amazing, actually. And just as yeah. you were speaking, I was thinking, I want to say thank you to everybody who made a donation and mm-hmm. put work into making this a reality where it's a place that mm-hmm. we can go enjoy because it's... It's a splendid spot. And yeah, thank you. Thank you, Monica. Thank you for yeah. the work that you put into it. Uh, I, I think we're, we're just like at the tip of the iceberg of yes. the explanation as to how much time mm-hmm. and effort went into this. But thank yeah. you and to Paul and everybody. Well, this is what happens when you retire. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. that. No, not no, for everybody. No, and not everybody was retired either. But, but and, and actually, Paul wasn't retired either. But I was. And this was something very dear to my heart job well done i i know that something else that's uh dear to your heart is uh sometimes in close proximity to brook and gallon point and that is mm-hmm. the orca whales and mm-hmm. something else i wanted to make sure that we touched on today was talking about uh pod pender ocean defenders yes and yes. that your involvement in that as well too mm-hmm. and to hear about uh Another thing that's really close to your heart that we actually talked a lot about upstairs before we began, but, and you really enlightened me as to the critical situation that exists for orcas Mm -hmm. currently as we would speak in uh, 2019 right now. But first of all, I guess, could you just explain how the organization uh, pod began and the reasons why? Okay. Well, pod got formed and it's, um, only ever being like an ad hoc group. We never made anything formal of it, but it has been active for a number of years. And I think it was in uh, November of 2014 
uh, that we heard about what was happening on Burnaby Mountain. Now, you remember I grew up in North Burnaby and uh, used to hike up there before there was a university or, or much development at all. Gorgeous. And so uh, what was happening was this company called Kinder Morgan was in a conservation area, cutting down trees and drilling. So that got my activist blood pumping. <laughs> and uh, so a group of us on Pender were outraged at this and got together over brunch and talked about what we might do about this. And I think there were 10 of us, and we were going to go up to Burnaby Mountain to join the protesters. And we had booked a motel and, you know, all the rest of it. We're ready to go in a couple of days. And what happened was Kinder Morgan stopped doing that. So we got together again and said, well, this is obviously an important issue for us. What do we want to do now? And so we formed a group called Pender Ocean Defenders because... Our concern is for the Sailor Sea and all who live in it and on its shores. And uh, so that includes ourselves, because we do live on, on the shores. And there are many species that live in the ocean, in the Sailor Sea, but the ones that were closest to our heart were the uh, southern resident orcas, the endangered SRKWs, killer whales as they're called, under the Species at Risk Act. And so we started focusing on what was happening for them and what would happen if the proposed increase in oil tanker traffic, also thanks to Kinder Morgan, were to go through our waters. And so we started learning and bringing awareness to the, uh, to the community about what that meant in terms of tanker traffic and uh, with an increase, the probable increase in uh, risk of a, an oil spill, and also looking at what was happening with uh, the many people out on whale-watching boats wanting to get close to the orcas. So one of the first things we did was to petition uh, Canada's parliament in 2015, asking that they increase the allowable approach distance in Canadian waters. So at the time... Whale-watching boats and other vessels, private vessels, could get within 100 meters of the southern residents. But on the American side, it was 200 meters. And so we petitioned Parliament asking them to make the distance the same, to raise it to 200 meters on the Canadian side. Because what would happen with the workers out there, with J-Pod mostly out there, was... Uh, if they were on the American side, the boats had to stay 200 meters away. If they moved over, swam over to the Canadian side of, of Boundary Pass, um, the boats would move in on them, and we could see that happening. And this was detrimental in terms of what we know now scientifically, the noise issue underwater, because the orcas can't hear each other or echolocate their prey easily in the presence of boats. And that includes canoes and kayaks. Wow, it's seriously. Not, it's not just noise. It's boat presence. Okay. Causes them to change their behavior. So that's why the sanctuary areas were put in place this last summer. I'll come back to that. So 
noise, the depletion of prey. So fewer Chinook, fewer old Chinook. When Granny, Sela, who was the matriarch of J-Pod, who was, we think, 105 when she died, when she was growing up, there were abundant Chinook, and there were five, six, seven-year-old Chinook that they were feeding on. So, unfortunately, fisheries have depleted a lot of the older fish, and what uh, they're feeding on now is um, two- and three-year-old. This is the orcas, okay, which is one of the reasons for the partial fishery closures to let more Chinook return to spawn. And then, of course, we know what happened in the Fraser Canyon this year with that rock slide. So a lot of the Chinook were um, not getting through and were having to be airlifted, helicopter lifted to get to the other side. And one of our friends and advisors, uh, Misty McDuffie, who's a salmon scientist for Green Coast Conservation Foundation, uh, she's the expert on Chinook, and she tells us that um, out of 16 species or subspecies of Chinook, 12 of them are endangered. So, you know, it's, a, it's obviously an extinction waiting to happen. So I think the best thing that we can do for the endangered orcas is just to get out of their way, leave them alone, get boats off the water or far enough away that they're not impinging on their ability to echolocate their food, and to have the larger ships slow down, and to really resist a lot of extra shipping that goes through there. Because every ship that goes through emits greenhouse gas emissions, and that affects everything. And with the boats on the water, it's not just the noise under the water, it's the gas exhaust on top of the water. So when the orcas come up and those boats are anywhere near them, they're breathing in those exhaust fumes as well. So we've been trying to um, work with what's happening on the uh, American side, Governor Inslee's uh, task force, which uh, my friend Donna Sandstrom was a member of. Donna started the, uh, the Whale Trail, which is now an international organization which advocates for land-based whale watching rather than on the water because there's no disturbance to the whales. And so Pender Island and Saturna Island were the first two in BC to join the Whale Trail. And two or three of us went over to Saturna Island, I think it was three summers ago, and Matt Donna and uh, Eric Hoyt, who works with Whales and Dolphins International. He studies the orcas over on the Russian side of the Pacific. Okay, so they were there talking about, about the whale trail and what's happening with the orcas. And uh, it was Simres, the Saturna Island Marine Research and Education Society, with their Sea Talks programs that hosted that. And they just held another one three weeks ago, which I went to again with Donna and Eric. And so it's a bringing together of some of the scientific knowledge around what's happening with the Southern residents and what we can do to try to mitigate what's happening to them. So, um, And so just to jump in here, the, the idea of the whale trail was mm. to create 
a more normalized experience of viewing whales from a land-based area Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to help encourage people to see the joy of doing that versus going out on a boat and Mm -hmm. causing basically damage towards the whales, taking away from an opportunity for them to have a normal existence yes. by the noise pollution and then mm-hmm. also the fuel that exists that you, you mentioned as well too. So, And so with the whale trail, because I've seen signs on the island, but when we talked about this earlier, I just saw the signs and thought, oh, it's a whale trail that there's some signs that are directing mm. me that I can see whales here. What else has been done with the the uh, the whale trail uh, initiative to, to help facilitate the the issues with the, the orca whales? Yes, yes. So the the range of the southern residents goes as far south as Monterey Bay in California. So that's the southern extent of the whale trail. Mm -hmm. And the northern extent goes up to certainly Campbell River, that area, possibly even to Haida Gwaii. And Donna was instrumental. Donna Sandstrom was instrumental in getting that going. This followed up on the rescue of Springer, who was a young orca calf separated from her pod, and they were able to identify that she belonged to a pod, which is one of the northern resident orcas uh, that lives in Johnson Strait. And so a number of groups got together on the Canadian and American side, NOAA on the American side, uh, DFO, the Vancouver Aquarium, and Paul Spong's Orca Lab, in Johnson Strait on the Canadian side, and she was returned to a sea pen in um, the waters in Johnson Strait, also known as Blackfish Sound. (laughs) So within a couple of hours, if not sooner, uh, she was calling out being in the water, and her pod arrived. And so they decided pretty soon, I think it was the next day, they decided to let her out of the sea pen because the pod hung around and they were communicating. And so she was adopted by uh, one of her female relatives, probably an aunt. And as I like to say, they took her under their their pectoral fin. It's, you know, like taking someone under your wing. And uh, they thought that this would really be successful if she returned. Well, she's returned every year since to that area where the sea pen was. And in the, I think, 13 years since then, she's come back with two calves. Yeah, so that was successful. Fantastic. And so what would you like to see happen specifically with the work that you're doing with POD? Because I know you mentioned a lot of things about the reduction of tanker traffic going through the area and Mm -hmm. uh, the reduction, if not the elimination of whale watching. Does whale watching have a place? Um, You know, it's, there's a lot of jobs involved there. I would like to see that transition to something else because it's just not sustainable. The attention that they've been piling on to the Southern residents, they are able to watch the transient, the big orcas, and get closer to them, but they have agreed to stay uh, 400 meters away from the southern residents. And so, you know, I commend them for that, but I still feel that uh, 
there were a lot of years when they were following them all hours of the day, every day of the week, and that was certainly detrimental to the whales. Well, for a variety of reasons, I would like there not to be an increase in oil tanker traffic through Boundary Pass and uh, down through Harrow Strait. There's a very tricky right-hand, no, not right, a right-angle turn, a 90-degree turn uh, from Boundary Pass into Harrow Strait with navigational hazards. And if a spill or when a spill would happen with the increase in tanker traffic, that's probably the second most likely place, the first most likely place being in uh, Burrard Inlet. Okay. I've never heard this before. This is very mm. interesting. So there's a specific area that due to the geographical arrangement yes. that it would make it more likely for an accident to take place in that particular location. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, you said it's Boundary Pass and Harrow Strait. Well, it goes from Boundary Pass yeah. into, into Harrow Strait and then down past Victoria okay. and out to sea. And when it passes Saturna Island, uh, these tankers, they're supposed to tether up to um, the tugboat. They've got pilots on board. They have to tether up to the tugboat, which they don't let go of until they're out into Juan de Fuca. And so I watch them going by, and uh, we're concerned about what's out of sight coming north through Harrow Strait because uh, you don't want two large ships meeting in that area. I don't think you do. Or anywhere close by. And we Doesn't... have seen that more than once where they're less than um, a football field apart. Yeah, so that's worrisome and concerning. Sure, because, I, yeah, the environmental impact would be catastrophic. It would. Yeah. It would, yeah. yeah. I mean, it sinks for one thing, uh, dilbit, diluted bitumen, but then all kinds of um, noxious fumes would be on the water surface, and then our our shores would, would get tarred with this very much like uh, Prince William Sound uh, with the Exxon Valdez, and, you know, that junk is still in the ocean, the killer whale population, New Yorker population was in that area, was essentially extinct because there were no more live births after that. So when those orcas die, that's the end of them. There is no more live births after that, really? No. Wow. No. And the people on the shorelines there, particularly the First Nations that depend on the, the ocean for a lot of their food, whether it's shellfish or, you know, ocean fish, they have not been able to harvest. This happened again at Bella Bella, just with the articulated barges going up there through the inside passage. It was a diesel spill when um, one of those tugboats went on a reef. So when we look at what's happening with our salmon populations, quite apart from the open net fish farms, there's all of this um, fossil fuel going through the area sure. and causing a lot of problems. And um, yeah, so those are things that concern me greatly. I should just fill you in on a little history of pod. For a variety of reasons, um, many of the first group of podsters are doing other things in their lives. But about a year ago, I approached a group called Save Our Whales, or SOS. And uh, 
ask them if they would like to join up with us because um, they seem to be doing very much the same kind of thing that we were doing. And so, uh, yeah, now we're a group of eight and we've been putting on information meetings at the community hall and getting people to write letters to our government. And uh, we've done a number of presentations both on Pender and uh, in Vancouver and uh, joining with the Climate Action March uh, demonstrations with Pender Island Youth in Victoria. That was the most recent. So we're still happening. We're still trying to find out what it is that we can do, beginning to make contact with the Friends of San Juan, uh, who are active on behalf of the orcas and on the American side. And they are talking about the rights of nature, both for the Sailor Sea and for the orca. So it, it's a growing movement, and there's growing awareness on both sides of the Sailor Sea. And uh, so that's what we're looking into and trying to share that knowledge and uh, awareness. I super appreciate you telling me about all this because I feel as if I've learned so much today. There's there's a lot of things that you've explained that uh, mm -hmm. I was unaware of. And yeah. thanks for explaining that. Before we shift gears into the next subject, mm -hmm. I just want to ask about your personal interactions with orcas and why you feel so passionate about wanting them to be preserved because not everybody feels that way, right? Like it's it's not a passion for everybody. So I was just wondering where that came from within you. Well, forgive me, but this will make me cry. <laughs> Just seeing them every summer, greeting them on the shore when they came back into the Sailor Sea, you know, watching them out there fishing, playing in the kelp beds. And uh, in the summer, sometimes we would see the super pod, which would be JK and L pods that make up J Clan. And we would see them out there doing their uh, communal hunting and fishing. And uh, it was just amazing to watch. So I have always felt that they were my friends and neighbors. And of course, to the uh, local Salish, Sainich, uh indigenous people, they are their relatives. Their relatives uh, who live under the sea, just as the islands are their relatives. And that's quite amazing to get to know that. So, for a variety of reasons, I love them, and I want to see them thrive. There's one other member of Elpod. She's called Tokatai by the Lummi, the Lummi tribe in First Nation in Washington State. She's one of their relatives, and. She was captured in the early 70s, maybe it was 76. She was captured along with a number of other orcas by people who then sold them to aquariums. And uh, she's been in Seaquarium in Miami for 49 years. She was, she was just a, a youngster. I think she was maybe four years old when she was captured. And, uh, is that right? Well, she's been there for a very long time. And, uh, 
So they call her Lolita. She's in um, a pool in which she can barely do laps around it. She can't dive deep. She performs twice a day for food and for the pleasure of an entertainment of people who pay money to go in and see her. And for a number of years, the Lummi have been trying to get her back to bring her home. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty gross. I'm, I'm feeling tears welling up in my eyes as you're explaining this. It's terrible, you know, like uh, zoos and aquariums are controversial things. I know how I feel about them, but I'm, I'm not into them. I don't think it's really right in any capacity to be caging any living creatures. And uh, yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. That's a, it's a reality. And uh, to hear the passion that you speak that with and to sit across from you and uh, I, have, I have tears welling up in my eyes right now. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Do you want to go on to another hard topic? <laughs> <laughs> Why are all my topics so Well, no, you know what? Let's... No, because they're close. And they're close. If if you wanna if you wanna go into something that's uh, might be a little bit difficult to talk about or or it might not be because it's about reconciliation. Yes. And I know that you and your husband Paul are uh, deeply involved in that. It's my understanding, mm. and uh, I'd I'd like to know more personally, and I'd like other people to hear about what you're doing and uh, within that. So, if you can take it away on uh, what uh, you and Paul have been involved with in terms of uh, First Nations work and reconciliation. Okay, so um, Paul was one of the founders of the South Pender Historical Society, along with Robert Dill and others. So one day he met an elder from Sayout at Poets Cove, and uh, I think she was giving a talk to some people, and uh, him, Salilia Claxton, and also um, Gwen Underwood. They were here. And then Earl Claxton Jr., who's another elder, was doing plant walks at the reserve, which is behind Poets Cove, the reserve land for the Sayout. And um, Celilia's mother, Elsie Claxton, was uh, the knowledge keeper for the herbs and the plants and the medicines. And she worked closely with Nancy Turner, who was a professor of ethnobotany at UVic. So that connection got made, and then Paul invited Celilia to come and speak to the AGM of the South Pender Historical Society. So she did. She came and talked about the 13-moon calendar, which is Wasanich or Sanich, as we're more familiar with. Their sense of the natural year and the progression of the plants and the animals and their relationship to them throughout the year. Uh, She came to give a talk about that. Okay, so while she was talking, the room was packed. People were very, very interested. It was the little community room at the fire hall on South Pender. So while she was doing that and talking about that, our friend David Spaulding was in the audience, and she was talking about when she was a child and they would come to uh, fish and gather shellfish and how they would trade with a family on Pender for butter and eggs, and they would trade salmon. And David said, I remember that. That was our family. Wow. Yeah. So after that, we got 
interested in developing more relationships with the people from Sayout, which is the the reserve on the east side of uh, the Saanich Peninsula near Mount Newton Crossroad. And Mount Newton, or um, can I say it properly? Well, I hesitate to say it in Sinchothan when I don't have, you know, the pronunciation right, but it is their sacred mountain. Okay. It's part of their um, origin story, because Wasanich means the emerging people, and this was after the flood, when they took shelter on that mountain. Okay, that's a long story, which I won't go into, but it's a story they tell us about their relationship uh, to the land and to the islands. And of course, those people and others, uh, other of the four sandwich bands on, on the peninsula, had reef net fisheries, which uh, one was just off where the reserve land is, and um, some were in other areas, but throughout the islands on both sides of the boundary. And uh, that was uh, the place where their, where their families would go to fish and get get their um, food for the winter. And the name for Pender Island in Senchothan is Steus, which means wind drying. It refers to drying the salmon. So that's what Solilia's family was doing when she was a child and where, where she met the Spalding family, David. So what the South Pender Historical Society has been doing for the last few years is looking at pioneer settler family history on the island and also at Sayout history on the on the island. And the uh, site at Poets Cove, where Poets Cove is now, the Bedwell Harbor Basin, was a 5,000-year-old village. Right. I didn't realize it was that old. Well, according to the Zainich, uh, it is. Uh, 5,000 years old. I believe it. I just didn't know. <laughs> okay. And it's it's interesting because the archaeologists who studied that area will talk about maybe a 2,000, 2,500-year-old village site there. Okay. But um, hasten to say that since a lot of it was underwater, they were sure that more evidence would show up eventually because Silvia was pretty adamant that it was 5,000 years old. At the canal site, there had been another village, which was, again, at least 4,000 years old. There was a repatriation of um, ancestral remains from Simon Fraser University, because there was an archaeological dig there back in the mid-80s. And when the archaeologist, Roy Carson, I think, saw bones coming out of the bank because of erosion through there. He went in and, and took those to preserve them. And uh, there were some other very intriguing artifacts or belongings found there at the same time. And just uh, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago in the spring, uh, the negotiations between the Sayout and Simon Fraser University, they agreed this was went on for 20 years, mind you, but Simon Fraser University agreed to return those human remains of the ancestors that were returned and reburied there. And uh, in the meantime, Ellen Willingham and 
others on the island, Jane Morley, Jane McIntosh, who used to live here, had begun a reconciliation circle following on the Truth and Reconciliation Report when it came out. And that was five years ago. And so I joined that uh, because I was very interested in that topic for a variety of reasons in my past, from indigenous family friends and finally coming to understand what had happened in the residential schools and the 60s scoop. Again, family connection there. I'm sorry, the way the 60s scoop? Mm hmm. Okay. When a lot of children were taken away from their families by social workers and adopted out to non-Indigenous families. Okay, all right. Okay. I'm familiar with that uh, that term, the 60s mm, scoop. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Okay. Thank you. Where was I? Oh, yeah, the founding of the Reconciliation Circle. So we still meet once a month. And Ellen Willingham, because she's um, the parish vicar for the Anglican Church on the island, the uh, parish, the word escapes me, but it's the B- the B.C., organization. They've been involved in reconciliation work because the Anglican Church used to run residential schools. Uh, So she was making connections with uh, the people from Sayout as well. So when they were coming to do the um, reburial, the repatriation of the ancestors, they needed a place to meet. And so she uh, gave over the the Anglican Hall, the parish hall, to their meetings. So members of the Reconciliation Circle went to be back up and to help with the meals and so on. So we got to be participants because at one point we would, had served the food and, and the indigenous people who were there came to get their food and went and sat down and one of them looked over at us and said, would you like to join us? So we did. And so we were witness to a lot of very interesting things that happened there. And we made more friends and connections. So that has been building. And when we had the uh, Canada's 150th birthday, the Historical Society had done some fundraising, got some government grants, and we invited members, leadership in the Say Out band, then Chief Harvey Underwood and his wife Lillian came over and we unveiled the 13 Moon Calendar, which is in front of the Church of the Good Shepherd now. And then they came and, and spoke to the people gathered at the school. There was a pit cook uh, led by Earl Claxton Sr. And we had our first blanket exercise there on the field at the school. And uh, so we got even deeper into understanding the, the history between Canada and the indigenous people of this area. And the other big issue that comes up is um, Red Dress Day. Three years ago, there was a young woman named Kim who was a teaching assistant at the school in the K-1 class. And I met her because I was volunteering in that class with the um, Colombian refugee children. I had been tutoring them in English, and uh, I was invited to come to the school to help one of the children who was in that class. Anyway, Kim was very interested in the National Red Dress Day movement, and the red dress symbolizes the 
many numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls across Canada. So she held a meeting on October 4th at the community hall. And as I recall, Geneva was there and I was there. Were you there? think i was at that one yes yeah yes, i was there yeah, that day, yeah i think there were three or four of us it was a small group it was a small group yes because it was midweek and uh, it was at the hall at six o'clock in the evening <laughs> <laughs> anyway i got introduced to what what was happening in terms of commemorating this and red dress day got started i think in 2010 as a thing as an event because a young metis artist named Jamie Black uh, had done an art installation in Winnipeg, I think at the university or the art gallery or museum in, in Winnipeg. And what she did was she hung red dresses, empty red dresses, to symbolize the missing women. And um, some were missing and never found. Some were missing and were eventually found and perhaps reunited. But far too many of them were murdered, never returned home. And so when Kim left the island, she passed on the things to me, including some of the red dresses. And so I took that last year to the reconciliation circle. And um, not me, but someone else in the group took it on and presented it. I happened to be away off the island that year. So this year it became my turn to organize it and uh, we have done it at the uh, open area at the Driftwood Center and used the display window there to put in uh, items, the red dress and some other items, to bring people's awareness to that. And then on the Saturdays, we've been there to answer people's questions, to help them understand that this is still an ongoing issue. Um, I guess, I guess part of the reason it's an ongoing issue is because of the simple question as to why. Why this keeps happening. Why does this keep happening? And, yeah. and that's a big unknown. To some extent, but not entirely. Okay. For example, in Winnipeg on the Red River, they found the bodies of teenage kids in the river. And every year they still do this thing called Drag the Red to see if they can find the bodies of any more missing people. So... This is still part of the legacy of residential schools, foster children, children being taken away from their indigenous families and communities and put in foster care. That's who most of those children were, mm -hmm. including probably the best-known name is Tina Fontaine, who was 15 years old when she was murdered and thrown into the river. And this was, what, three years ago? So in BC, it has to do with what we call the Highway of Tears, which is um, the Highway 16 between Prince Rupert and Prince George. There's totally inadequate bus service, and it was being run by Greyhounds, so it cost money, which, um, you know, impoverished people can't always afford it. So there's a lot of hitchhiking, and a number of women and men have gone missing while hitchhiking on, on that highway. Mm -hmm. I guess th that's what I was sort of aiming towards with the question as to why, because that mm -hmm. highway is synonymous with people going missing and mm -hmm. never turning up again. And then not, not in every case, but 
it's a big question to me as to why in that particular location that it's so prevalent that First Nations people are being taken and disappearing and mm-hmm. and subsequently being murdered yes. in, uh, in in that particular location is and yeah. I guess why is that happening there you know and well it's happening all over the place yeah of course the week that we held Red Dress Day uh, there were four reports of missing people just in the lower mainland in Vancouver Island wow because one gentleman uh, came up and was asking us, uh, well, this doesn't happen anymore, or, you know, why why do the families not uh, get over this? Well, excuse me, you wouldn't get over losing a member of your family. I may be misquoting him, but he was curious about this. He thought it was in the past. Okay. And so I was able to tell him about the four missing people that I had read about just in the previous week. And that really began to alter his thinking because he hadn't realized that this is still happening. So a lot of youngsters, young people who've been in foster care, who are really confused about their identity and um, where they come from, young people who leave home for adventure. There are a lot of reasons why they're out away from their communities and they're easy prey. They're easy prey for people who want to exploit them. And uh, that's what happens. They're, some of it's domestic, for sure. And it's not just women and girls. As we heard in the report, the final report of the MMIWG, they tacked on a whole lot of other initials behind that. So it's trans people, it's two-spirit people. It's uh, anybody who's vulnerable and marginalized. And, of course, it happens in the non-Indigenous community as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, the percentage of Indigenous people who go missing and murdered is multiple times higher than their representation in the population. And, you know, it's interesting that you got involved in this Red Dress Project and having a curiosity and being involved in it through identifying through the South Island Historical Society with the coming together of First Nations and their connection to the Mm -hmm. island that we live on. It's kind of interesting that if you choose to get involved in any particular situation, it seems as if it can branch in many different directions Mm -hmm. if you choose to let it or want to let it or allow it to happen. But uh, it's interesting through having this conversation with you and hearing all the different things that you've been involved with. I've just been reflecting while you've been Mm. speaking about how different of a interview and conversation this has been than most other interviews or maybe any other interview that I've done. Mm. And it's so remarkable to me, the amount of different initiatives that just in the last 20 years that you've been involved in, because I'm just thinking about going back to Brooks Point in Mm -hmm. the past there, but, you know, maybe just to start to wind things up a little bit here and moving from talking about the help that you've given through trying to raise money for Brooks Point and reconciliation project and pod. The second traditional question I always like to get to on this podcast is, Who's helped you along the way on Pender Island? Oh, who's helped me? Well, let me just say that I've been active in protesting 
about something since I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and at that time, it was atmospheric testing of nuclear bombs. Okay, so uh, I, I guess I've just always cared about what's happening in the public sector and recognizing that even though we were not well off when I was growing up, I certainly had the privilege of a good education. And let me just say that living here on Steas, on unceded territory of our homeland, of our, of our neighbors over on the Saanich Peninsula, I recognize that that is a huge privilege. And with it, I think, goes responsibility. You know, stewardship of the land is part of it. And reconciling with, with those people who I met a man last week whose great-grandfather was the last hereditary chief here in Bedwell Harbor. So, you know, there's that. There's caring about it and also being in a somewhat privileged position of being retired and owning my own home. I don't have to work for a living, so I've got time to be involved in things that matter to me. So who on Pender Island? Well, Eve Smith to begin with. First of all, inviting my mom and I to come here. <laughs> right on. <laughs> and other people that I've met here, I would say um, May Moore has been a person very influential in my life, both as an artist. We were both members of the Red Tree Gallery at Hope Bay. She has been, and, and Lynn Wells. Uh, we were three of the people that uh, got started with, with Pod. And um, who else? Well, Carl, because of Carl Hampson's um, contributions to the community. One, one of the first Brooks Point fundraising events was in Carl's barn. <laughs> I think he mentioned that in his, uh, yeah. in his interview, yeah. Right. So... Um, who else? Other other people around here. Some of the, some of the Pender elders certainly, members of the Spalding family, and people in the arts community, people in the musicians. I think I've just I've learned a lot from many of the folks who live here, uh, in the past and certainly into uh, the present. Yeah. Nice. Are there any final thoughts that you uh, you have? Uh, you know. I never know how these things are going to go. I'm really happy with how this has turned mm. out. It's really been amazing. I was telling you before we started that I've been choosing to not have a hard limit on making these an hour long and to giving more time and to allowing more of people's stories and their life to come out. And uh, I feel I feel as if something happened here today that has impacted my life and I'm not exactly sure how or what that is exactly, but I'm really thankful for you sharing these stories and giving me an opportunity mm. to to interview you and to hear about these things and documenting this, not just for the recent future, but years to come in the future. And mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier that we're recording this in 2019 and I have a hope that people in the, uh, the future will be listening to this and looking back and hearing about what uh, things were like on Pender Island and not, not just what people were doing but also what they were feeling and that mm -hmm. you expressed a lot of feeling within this and thanks yeah. thanks for uh thanks yeah. for opening up and talking about things but i guess i guess uh the the final question is uh what what would you like to uh, end off with saying to the people of uh, pender and beyond oh, well it has been very special for me to spend a lot of my life here and i've seen a lot of changes on both islands but particularly on south pender over the years 
One of my major concern is into the future. If we don't get involved in climate action, we're going to have a much harder time. Uh, not just us in our lives, but uh, I want my grandchildren to see this as a, a sanctuary, uh, a place where they can come when they're retiring from their active lives. And uh, I want it still to be a livable place for everybody's children and grandchildren. And uh, that includes our First Nations neighbors. And it includes all the creatures that live in the Sailor Sea. Lovely. Lovely. Monica, thank you very much for coming in. Well, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. All right. Well, I'd really like to thank Monica again for that wonderful interview. And to honor that interview, I decided that I would come visit the 13 moon calendar. So this is located on the South Island outside of the Church of the Good Shepherd. And uh, for those people who don't know where that's located, this is just past Poets Cove. And it's a beautiful piece of art that's square with a circle in the middle and a lot of writing and art depicting what is available for harvest and what is in abundance at different times of year on our island. There is a quote up above that I'd like to read out right now, and it's from the late Raymond Philip Sam, a Sayout elder. And the quote is, When I was growing up, I was taught that the Creator gave us the land, the waters, the air, and every living thing on earth to look after. If we look after this, it will take care of our needs today and for generations to come. I thought that quote was pretty fitting, considering a lot of the things that Monica discussed in the interview. So thank you to Monica once again. And before I sign off, I'd like to take this time to mention that I'm working on a new project right now. And this project that I'm working on, I'm titling My Audio Memoir. So what this is, is this is a opportunity for people to record their life stories privately and then have the copies to pass along to future generations. So if you've ever thought about recording yourself for your children or your grandchildren to hear your life experiences, your wisdoms, and your history, this might be for you. If you have a parent in your life or a grandparent who you would like to have their stories put down on audio for yourself or your children to hear, this also could be something you're interested in. So to explain a little bit further, these recordings can be anywhere from an hour to two to five to ten hours long, whatever you'd like to choose. And prior to doing the recording, I would spend a lengthy period of time helping people work through different stories in their life, find out what things have happened that are important to them, what stories that they would like to leave behind and pass down, and work through developing the stories to make them coherent and clear. And the recordings would wind up taking place in the comfort of your own home. I would come visit you there and set up the audio equipment. And once the recording is finished, that's where the majority of the work would take place during the editing process, where I would edit myself out of the recording and tighten everything up to make the interviewee as clear and coherent as possible and have a nice, crisp, finished product. So 
If you're interested in this at all and have some more questions and would like to find out more, you can get a hold of me through an email address that I set up, which is myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. To spell that out for you, it's M-Y-A-U-D-I-O-M-E-M-O-I-R at outlook.com. It's all lowercase. And if you look in the show notes, I have typed out the email address there as well, too, for you to find. So if you'd like to find out more about cost and other things involved, please feel free to get a hold of me. And I can't help but stress enough how important I think that this possibly could be. I know myself, if I was able to hear a recording of my grandfather when he was at a certain age, describing certain life experiences he had and hearing his own stories through his own voice would be amazing to have. So thank you to Tarmigan Arts for helping to support this podcast. Thank you to Ben McConkey for providing the theme music for this show. And thank you for listening. Until next time.